Hey friends, you're listening to Collaboration Code Radio, where we bring together the tech and coding community in San Diego. I'm your host, Chelsea Kaufman, CEO of Learn Academy, and I am very excited to have April Winsel of Compassionate Coding with me today. <laughs> uh, I have been following you for a long time, and we've had some amazing conversations, so I'm excited to kind of continue that with an audience. Yeah, I'm really excited. <laughs> I was just thinking, I was like, yeah, we often have these great chats over coffee, and it's like, hey, why not record them? <laughs> That's awesome. For sure, for sure. We ha we've had a few of our community members in that I feel like, I feel like I'm just inviting an audience into my coffee dates with people. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Spread the love. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, let's um, let's start from the very beginning and just learn a little bit about you and where you came from and, and how you kind of got into tech. Sure. Um, maybe where's home? Yeah. Um, so home is now in Encinitas. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so that has become my home. Uh, it's a little bit north of here. and uh, But I grew up in Texas. So that was home for a long time. And that's where I got into tech. So that's where I started programming in high school. I took computer science starting as my sophomore year in high school. That's amazing. But I think that that is more common today than it probably was back then. Like, yeah. was it a new program at the school? Or? Uh, yeah, it was fairly new. Yeah, we didn't even have like a normal textbook. We had um, these like paper bound sort of <laughs> books that some other teacher had made. So my teacher, you know, copied and that's what we used. That's awesome. What do you remember what like languages you were working yeah, on? Yeah, so and... we started in C++ in Turbo C++, which was like this um, DOS based kind of program. So yeah. it was very like old school looking and everything. And uh, so we did C++ and then Java. Um, and then just like kind of a sampling of a bunch of different languages, Pascal, um, C, uh, proper C. So yeah. That's amazing. But Super fun. To have that kind of opportunity. I felt so really fun. grateful, yeah. Uh, and so did that, like as you graduated from high school, did that kind of gear you into going into computer science? Yeah, I just loved it. So like, you know, being able to create these worlds in the computer and like learn this whole new language, set of languages, which just felt really powerful. So yeah. I was just like, yes, gotta keep going with this. <laughs> Cool. And then you went to Pomona College? Yeah, right? yeah. It's in Southern California, um, part of the Claremont Colleges. Um, and uh, part of why I picked it, because it had a cool logo. They had like a rainbow logo, and it was in California, <laughs> and I wanted to get out of Texas. So, But it's actually, you know, pretty good school. I think the year I went, it was like number two in liberal arts school. So it's people don't know it but outside of California very much, but it's like, it's a good school. <laughs> I have to defend, you know, Pomona there. But yeah, it's a good school. That's awesome. Uh, and then, so tell me about your experience there. What were what the highlights? So, so um, let's see. Uh, it's a bit of a haze. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, <laughs> I was a very serious college student, so it was just it was a haze of studying a lot all the time uh, just to get good grades. Um, but uh, let's see. It was a liberal arts school, so meaning that I took a lot of non-computer science classes in addition to computer science, mm -hmm. which I think has been important in terms of the direction that I've taken my career. Um, but yeah, so I studied, I majored in computer science, although that wasn't my first sort of um, inclination. I knew I wanted to continue studying computer science, but I was also interested in archaeology. Oh, cool. So I actually uh, initially was going to major in anthropology. And so my first advisor was actually in anthropology, um, but I still continued taking computer science classes. Social and then, anthropology or physical anthropology? Um, it was such a small school that there weren't specialties. It was just sure. anthropology. Sure. Um, yeah. 
because yeah, very small school. Um, so, but I wanted my interest was in archaeology, so I wanted to be on the digs and doing all of that. But all then right. one of the early projects was we had all of this shell midden, which is just like shell pieces from like um, the Channel Islands, and we had to sort them by type, and they were all these like broken pieces of shell, and it was very tedious <laughs> exercise. So I was like, this isn't anything like Indiana Jones, so <laughs> I want to move back to computer science. So then I was like, all right, my my heart still belongs in the computer world, so I went back to majoring in computer science. Great. So then after college, uh, can you talk a little bit about that experience of like getting your first dev job and what that was like as a new developer? Yeah. So the interviews were as probably as awful then as they are now in that. Um, so one of my first ones, I remember I was still on campus. So I hadn't graduated yet. And um, they they brought in, you know, recruiters to interview us and stuff like that. And one was a game company. And at the time I loved games. And so I really wanted to work for a gaming company. And in the interview, they said, well, you know, we usually like to hire women when we're working on family-oriented games, and right now we're focused on action adventures, so... And I was just like, seriously? Like, because at the time, you know, I loved playing the action-adventure games, so I felt like that was kind of one of the first times when I felt the bias sort of in the industry. Um, in addition, like they would ask me these trivia questions, like they asked me something about like a certain power of two, and, and I calculated it correctly, but they expected me to just have it memorized. and. You know, because I didn't. So anyway, that was my first taste of, okay, this is going to be annoying. And then most interviews were kind of like that. Um, I did get an early job offer because one of my professors had a connection to a startup up in um, uh, San Francisco. And so I got an offer there. But the team I was going to work with was going to be, you know, there was nobody like me. They were all, you know, like middle-aged men. And this wasn't one of the bro ones. It was more like just kind of one of the old school older men kind of companies. And uh, it just d- didn't seem like it would be very exciting to me, very fulfilling. So I turned that down and just decided to work on a startup with some of my friends. So I actually, when I was first up there for the first few months, I was trying to do a startup with some of my friends from school. But we didn't have any experience, so it didn't go well. So sure. we, we all ended up getting jobs instead. <laughs> and so my first job was actually at Sony up in San Francisco. Wow. Okay. So what was what was that experience like? Like Sony's a a huge company. They are a huge right? company. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um you know, I was excited because they, they, they lured me in, like they gave me a free PlayStation when I joined and all this. I was like, oh, this is going to be really cool. Uh, but I was working on developer tools, which, you know, is not uncommon when you're first getting into the industry. Sure. Uh, to work on something, you know, kind of behind the scenes uh, to, to, you know, put in your, you know, dues or whatever. Uh, but um, it was the, the bigness of the company definitely affected me. I felt like I wasn't having as much of an impact as I wanted to. I felt like I could really just sit at my desk and do nothing all day and no one would really know. So yeah. it, there's so much and there's so much bureaucracy. If you want to use a tool, you have to get so much approval and all of that. And it just felt like I was just this little cog in the machine and it just wasn't very exciting. So I was only there eight months or so. And then I um, ignored all advice where people are like, oh, make sure you stay at least a year, two years, whatever. And just like, no, I can't do this anymore. So I listened to myself and decided, nope, I'm out. Yeah. Well, and so you, I mean, that's a big jump going from like working on a small startup with Mm -hmm. your friends to like working at such an institution. Yeah, it was big. And, and, and it, you know, that was that was a big leap. And uh, but, I, you know, I learned a lot from it because, you know, you have to try stuff right to see if you're going to like it or not. And yeah. so, th- I mean, it was comfortable, you know, in that like I was getting a steady paycheck. And like I said, there was there wasn't much oversight. I mean, of course, I, I got like great performance reviews or whatever, but it just was it felt empty sort of. I just didn't feel like I was having a big impact on anything significant. Sure. Um, Versus like in the startup, it was like 
anything that I would work on would have a big impact on the company because there are just so few of us. Right, 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 right. That makes sense. So you're at Sony for eight months and then where where did that take you from there? So I quit again without anything lined up, which I did every time I quit. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I ended up working at uh, another gaming startup after that. So it was a small startup. I knew at least at that point that I wanted to move back to smaller companies. And so I did move back to a smaller company and we were doing social games. So this was like 2009 or so. So Facebook games were, um, you know, all the rage. There was the Farmville and sure. all of that. And so I was working for one of those companies, not my proudest moment, but um, only because there's nothing inherently wrong with these games. But a lot of the tactics that are used to make them addictive are like, ethically questionable, I would say. And sure. at the time, I was just like, oh, it's a job. But now looking back, I'm like, mm, yeah, was I really contributing positive to society or negative at that point? Hard to say. Yeah. I think that one of the things that I've always enjoyed about learning more and more about your story is I always think that all of the things that we go through, quitting jobs, like moving different things, are all adding up to what we need to know to what we're doing now. Yeah. And that there is something to, even in really horrible situations <laughs> and all those things, like the things that you take from that mm. experience mm -hmm. just adds to it. And you're such a great example of that because of your your mission with Compassionate Coding and all that stuff, uh, which I we will spend quite a bit of time talking mm -hmm. about. But I love hearing all this kind of the background to kind of see, oh, I can I can see the path to like yeah. where you are now. And I think that that's really amazing. Yeah, I'm glad. Thank you for pointing that out. And I think it's it's worth pointing out because, you know, like I said, a lot of times people will get advice not to leave a job or not to, you know, have a bunch of different jobs on your resume or too many different industries or whatnot. But, you know, everyone has a unique path that they're on. And so the advice that's sort of given to everyone may or may not apply to you. And it definitely didn't apply to me. So I, I think that's so important, especially we talk to our students a lot about that because they come from very different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. They're making big shifts in their mm -hmm. lives and that they have a different story. Yeah. And that it's not necessarily the like I went you know, I went to college, I got my CS degree, mm -hmm. I became a developer, I like went yeah. up the ranks and things like that. That it's most people's paths are not that linear. Yeah. And that even in, it's so important to kind of look at your background and, and learn from that, mm -hmm. even if it's a tough situation, that there's something that you can get out of it. Yeah, well, and that's what I love so much about people who th go through coding schools, especially learn, is that they do have all of those diverse experiences to bring to the table uh, that we that are sorely needed in the tech industry. So I think that that's great. Yeah, that's one of the things that I wanted to touch on today because you've been such an advocate for coding boot camps mm -hmm. and these alternative ways to learn programming, mm -hmm. especially as somebody who came from such a traditional <laughs> yeah. background, <laughs> yeah. that it's nice to kind of see it, like you can see it almost from both sides of it, like yeah. working with people that have gone through the boot camp and then also your, your own experience getting into the industry. Yeah, well, you know, I will say that when I was working at all these different companies that I did throughout my career, there I noticed that when these boot camps started to rise up, there was this strong like bias against boot camps. It was like, no, you have to, you know, be a real computer science, you know, graduate or whatever, which again is just meaningless. But there was this like sort of elitism, I think, about mm. something about that. And I just, 
once I saw it for what it was, I was just like, you know, this is, all this is doing is keeping us from hiring people who would add a lot of value to our companies. And, and there's really no, no reason for it. And so I just, I figured since I had gone through the, the traditional background, I was like, it's, it's on me, I think, partly to, to change this. And so, plus, you know, people who go through coding boot camps, I, I've said this many times, that they have more practical skills than I had coming out of a computer science degree. Like, absolutely. Because you're using real world skills and you're doing them in a way that people are going to use on the job versus computer science program, which is much more about the theory. It's much more abstract. You do some projects, but it's definitely not team oriented at all. Like there may be some group projects, but it's mostly, you know, you're getting grades. And so it's much more about your own individual performance. Boot camps are, you know, more collaborative generally, like you're working with other people. Um, using skills that are actually being used to make products right now. So I think it's a much more efficient way to get people in a place where they can contribute. Right. And I, we like to see that they it will introduce people into an industry that yeah. has lots of opportunity and that once you go through boot camp, there's been a lot of our students that then decide they want to go get a CS degree because That's the great, theory, yeah. because the practice is interesting to them yeah. and that they want to get to a different kind of, a different level. Yeah, that of, makes sense. Yeah. Um, but the, the boot camps do exactly what you say. It's, it is job training. It's mm -hmm. like getting people into all of these jobs out there because there's a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. And most of the time, especially for smaller companies, don't have the resources to, uh, teach those day-to-day -day mm -hmm. operations and, and get people onboarded. Uh, and so the boot camps are trying to lessen that for companies also. Yeah. So It's a great service, seriously. So thank you for doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for supporting it and supporting our students. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about your your personal journey of like moving up the ranks and like working as a junior and then kind of moving more in towards the senior roles and what yeah. that was like? Um, as a woman in the field and, and... Yeah, I will say that when I started, there was none of this junior senior business really it was like entry <laughs> level was like you know you, you there you'd look for an entry level job that was one thing sure. but then you were just an engineer like you know I mean they did eventually have like senior engineer titles but there was no like distinguishing the junior from senior which now seems to be very prevalent and it's like it's hard to break out of that label once you get it so I think that was one thing I'm grateful for is when I started it was not like that you were an engineer and then at some point someone arbitrarily decides to call you a senior engineer and that's honestly the truth of it it's like I was at a company doing this same stuff I was always doing because, you know, I, it's in my nature to sort of take on leadership responsibilities, whether or not it's in my job title. And just one day, you know, I think it was partly my manager. It would make him look good if he, you know, nurtured someone to become a senior engineer. So one day it's like on my performance review, it's like, OK, now you're a senior engineer. So I think we put a little bit too much weight on labels sometimes, I think, um, in the industry. And uh, they don't really they don't really mean as much as we think they do. Uh, because, you know, again, too, let's say that I've been doing Java for, you know, 20 years, then maybe I'm a senior engineer. But then I move over to some other new language. I'm kind of at a junior level at that language. And uh, so calling me a senior engineer, yes, but I may be able to learn from one of these, quote, junior engineers because they're much more experienced in React or something like that. Sure. Well, and I think what I found is really interesting is that it's it's not like there's a universal mm -mm. Ag agreement on what those levels are. And so every company is kind of defining them within the team. Yeah. And that that it, that's hard for anyone coming into the industry to like uh, navigate that when the rules change interview to interview. It's so true. Yeah. Um, I, 
I want to go back to something that you were saying about <laughs> yourself about um, taking on leadership roles and yeah. things like that. I know that um, we've talked before a lot about burnout mm -hmm. and things like that in the industry, and we try really hard with our students to to uh, support them in not getting burned yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it is an industry that is like known for that. Mm -hmm. That it I is. know that a lot of engineers and different people are really kind of fighting against that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with that? Yeah, well, there's just so much pressure because, you know, th given the nature of the industry, there's always something new to learn. There's always something to work on. You always have an infinite to-do list in, you know, Jira or Trello or whatever, Pivotal Tracker. And you have, like, all of these tickets that you should be working on. And so there's this endless pressure. And so it's really on you to decide to step back. Um, but the problem is that there's an incentive to burn yourself out because you get rewarded if you're the person who stays till 3 a.m. fixing a bug or comes in on the weekend, you know, or neglects the rest of your life just to, you know, obsess over uh, coding uh, or your responsibilities. And so there's so much reward for that that it's almost like it's it's built to burn you out. <laughs> for, for sure. And I think that that's really interesting. I The idea of the the reward especially mm -hmm. for because that limits it to only a certain group of people that can yeah get those rewards that there's a whole like people that are you know have families exactly, or yeah. or you know have other responsibilities that like can't do that that they then miss out on those rewards yeah and that pressure is just can be very mounting. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, need to leave at five so, you know, you can have dinner with your family, you know, that should be rewarded. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because and also because, sure. I mean, that's making you a more well-rounded person. And, uh, you know, it's just. Yeah. So I think that that's one of the problems there is that uh, who we look to as who's a role model of like who's, you know, a lot of these programmer heroes are the ones who are just singularly obsessed with programming. Right. And I think we need people who are much more balanced and, and interested in, um, you know, more diverse set of things. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's interesting because the idea of it's an industry where no one's going to know everything. It's, yes. it's not something that you can go in and be like, I'm going to learn <laughs> all, of, all of the things, <laughs> yes. right? So yeah. there's this, there is this constant like, oh, I learned this. Oh, now I need to learn uh -huh. this. And now I need to learn this, that you're, you're juggling. That's yeah. really difficult, mm -hmm. especially I think for, for driven mm -hmm. people. That, yeah. like, I understand that. Like mm -hmm. I constantly want to like push myself yeah. and you have to like fight against uh -huh. that and remember all the other things in your life. That, yeah make you actually a better uh, mm -hmm. employee and a better person. developer, <laughs> yeah. better person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because you're balancing that out. Yeah. And I think I saw recently you were doing a meetup with uh, Women Who Code. Yeah, yeah, we're doing a hiking meetup. So awesome. yeah, the idea is, you know, we're just gonna get out in nature, away from the computers, and just enjoy some human time out in nature. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever, have you done any of the like Rails Camp I haven't, Gosh. but I'm familiar with them, and those are cool too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. That was we have a couple of Rob and some of our other instructors. That's one of their favorite things to do. Like, <laughs> yeah, they just, you go camping. There's hacking involved, I think. Yeah, I think yeah, I think there is. Um, yeah, and and so there is a little bit of the like we're going to be in nature and still be yeah, which, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's a much more like let's go hiking, let's be out in nature, yeah. let's do all that stuff. And I think that it's cool to see that there's organizations out there kind of supporting yeah that 
that change. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, we see study after study about how the benefits of nature to like your well-being and everything like that. So I think taking a conscious effort, making a conscious effort to get out there is really important, like for individuals, groups, et cetera. For sure. Well, and I think that the balance, finding balance and not, if you're working 15 hour days or mm-hmm. whatever ridiculous amount of hours, <laughs> like you're, you are not a productive person for 15 hours. No, you're not. Like, that is an impossible thing. Yeah. As much as you can try and trick your brain <laughs> that you think that you're a productive person. No, it's person, true. Yeah. 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 You're not. And so to what we talk about in our classroom is that I only want the students to give me eight hours of their most productive time. Mm-hmm. And so the hours outside of that, they need to do whatever it is <laughs> they need to do yeah. in order to be productive for those eight hours. Yeah. And I think that that's, it's so important for employers and things like Mm -hmm. that to kind of look at it in that way. Like, it's not a matter of how many hours they give you. What's the productivity of the time that they're with you? Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, I think especially like the boot camp environment, you know, is a a quick environment and eight hours, you know, does make sense for that. But I think honestly, even in workplaces, like I've read... um, some studies that show that like people really only have four hours of like their most you know like hardcore productive focused mind work and that you know you can do emails and stuff after that but that if you really are trying to do deep work like four hours is kind of a max which you know most employers like I I hate it having to just sit at a desk for eight hours a day regardless because sometimes I'm just not feeling it or I can get my work done you know in an hour in the day and then you know I just have to sit there for appearances so I think we definitely need to rethink the our, our corporate environments like that in general but yeah. Right. We, we've we been talking about this recently on the learn the admin side of like we we have the, you know, unlimited PTO policy, mm-hmm. um, but mostly because I have no interest in tracking anyone's time mm-hmm. that like I want to let's set up our goals. Yeah. And make it more about tracking that and yeah. not tracking like hour for hour yeah right like that, like that doesn't make sense to me mm-hmm. um it's interesting that so I've talked before on the podcast that before I came into tech I was in the theater mm-hmm. and they also have a big burnout mm. problem there because you're you it's it's similar to startup in that you have this like deadline that opening night's happening that yeah. launch is happening whether you're ready for it or not right, right? so mm-hmm. you're like on this moving train and you end up working these like crazy hours yeah. to try and get the show up. And I think that when I was in the industry, we we were there were much more conversations starting right before I left of like, how do we make it so that we can do this in a more productive mm-hmm. way? Because these like twelve hour days are not yeah. efficient mm-hmm. because you waste time because people are tired and yeah. make mistakes and then things happen and. I think it's similar in in the industry. So I like that there's more conversations happening mm-hmm. and that there's more leaders out there that are, you know, talking about the four hour work day or what's the four day work four day, four day yeah, week. Yeah, I've heard about that. So my one of my friends is actually her company's doing the four day week so far. She likes it. So Yeah, I I think it's great. I mean, the idea of just changing the way you think about um your work time, the like yeah. Why is it that it's defined by number of hours? Right. It doesn't make sense. No, <laughs> no, no, no. And especially because the hours, like you said, it doesn't equate to like, oh, 40 hours means that you can have 40 hours of productive yeah. time. That, yeah. That's nutty. No, it's so true. I will say one thing I like about being an entrepreneur now and having my own company is that I can experiment with this like across the board. <laughs> so I'll be like, 
okay, like I'll just, you know, take a few days and, and go to the beach for a few days. And then I'll write like a ton of stuff and get like a bunch of my talks prepared in like, you know, five hours one day. And so it's like, you know, you never know. I don't know. I feel like we should have people should have much more freedom over their time, you know, even in corporate environments. But it's definitely one of the advantages of entrepreneurship. Yeah, I, I think that it it it'll start the way it'll really change is actually starting earlier than that, like because of the habits we're building with our children in school mm -hmm. uh, that you, we're training them for the yeah. 40 hour 40 hour work week. Yeah, that, that's like, true. And so we have to kind of look at the way we've structured our school system that's and how point. like before I think really big change will happen. Like I'm glad that we're having these conversations. I feel like every time I hire somebody at Learn, I have to break them of all these like, <laughs> yeah. habits. Yeah, of, yeah, like, yeah. No, you, you don't have to tell me if you're going to like have to leave early or uh -huh. like, you have to like, it doesn't matter. Right, if right. If you're getting your job done, then that's the conversation I want to have. Yeah. If you're not getting your job done, then we'll have a conversation. Yeah. But leaving early, like, <laughs> I don't know, like let us yeah. know, but yeah. it's yeah. not a like seeking of approval. Kind right, of right, right. So anyway, I think. <laughs> Yeah, but but to me, I feel like it's breaking those habits. Yeah, as early as we can. That makes a lot of sense. I, I definitely worked way too hard and way too many hours um, in school. For so I know I started the, those habits early too. So yeah, I did. I did the right? same thing. Yeah. I was you know work and people will Rob will still say that I am a workaholic. But <laughs> I feel like now and and especially for us, like having a family mm -hmm. helped me all of a sudden go. Okay, wait a second. Yeah. I am going to be home from dinner and I am yeah. going to like shift things around. Yeah. But I do think that back to what you were saying about being an entrepreneur that that definitely I am very very fortunate that mm -hmm. that flexibility allows me to kind of shape yeah. shape my day the way I want it to mm -hmm. be and what's good for Ruby and things like that. So anyway, mm -hmm. um that's amazing. So uh I assume that like all these jobs kind of lead up to some burnout. Yeah. And can you tell me about what's the transition between that and launching, starting Compassionate Coding? Yeah, it's interesting because it was it was burnout, but also just really frustration with the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, and what was the breaking point was um, the last job that I, where I was working for someone else. Uh, I was the first woman hired, software engineer hired on a team, a department of about 40 people, 40 uh, software engineers, and I was the first woman. And I was also, so I was also the first woman lead. And uh, I tried to leverage that to one, hire more women, which I did, and two, try to shake up some of the things that we were doing to make it more inclusive, right? So there's diversity, which is having people from different backgrounds, and then there's inclusion, which is making them feel welcome. <laughs> Very different things, yep. but definitely related. And so I was trying to also work on the inclusion angle. So I would m bring attention when we would use language like, we need to hire a good iOS guy. And I would say, you know, when you say that, it's setting up an image in people's mind of who we're trying to hire. And like, I'm not picturing a woman when I hear that. And let's, you know, change that up. So that's an example. So I would bring up all these sorts of issues. I joined, uh, we had sort of a grassroots diversity and inclusion team uh, at the company uh, across different departments, and I joined that. But anyway, so because I became very vocal about diversity and inclusion issues, uh, I got feedback in a one-on-one -on -one that people were afraid of me, <laughs> and which was really frustrating, obviously, yeah. because, you know, being like a member of one of these groups that in tech has been marginalized and trying to advocate for uh, people in my group and people in other groups who have been um, excluded and marginalized marginalized in tech and then being told that they were afraid of me. It was just, it was frustrating. And so I just quit 
Uh, I gave two weeks notice that after, right <laughs> after I got that feedback. It was a rage quit, as I like to say it. <laughs> but I did give notice, but yeah, pretty much I wanted out of there. Uh, and so I was like, you know what? I'm tired of trying to change from within this within a broken system, which is what I was trying to do. And so I was like, I need to, I need to do something bigger. And so that's why I decided to start Compassionate Coding, to make the changes uh, across all these things, burnout, diversity and inclusion, uh, even the products we build, building more ethical products, just bringing more of the human side to the conversation in tech. Yeah. Um, when you were at that company, we, I've been talking a lot about the idea of the inclusion process within the hiring pipeline, mm-hmm. because it, you, what you ideally want when you're hiring is to have a a very diverse group of people that you're choosing from. Yeah. And so that means that when you're putting out information on a job, that it needs to attract different people yeah. and things like that. Were there things that you were doing then that, you know, you could speak to to, you know, help that process? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things was I would go out into meetup groups that were for women in tech and I would recruit there. So like I would make the effort and go out there and, and you know, find some women to add to the, to our pool. Yeah. Um, and I think it takes a proactive approach like that. But there's also things, you know, like in the job description, um, the requirements, the quote requirements that are listed are often just preferences or like, you know, a wish list by right. of this perfect uh, candidate that doesn't exist. Right. And, uh, you know, there are studies that show that when women see things that they aren't a fit for, uh, 100%, they won't apply at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, and men will, um, you know, leave the, as an exercise to the reader why that is. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, making sure that we don't put in these ridiculous requirements in the job pose is one thing. I think, too, like the language we use, you know, there's some tools out there that will look at the, um, the gendered uh, nature of the language, because there are certain terms that you can use that, although they might not be specifically male or female, are like more masculine or feminine coded. So like, you know, women are looking, you know, in general, I'm using um, general uh, generalized language here, sure. but, you know, <laughs> women are going to look for like collaborative environments, you know, and, and men might look more for competitive. So if you're like, you know, I've seen ones that are say, like, say, you have to put your blood, sweat, and tears into this. And I'm like, that does not sound appealing to me (laughs) Uh, as a woman. And I'm sure many men, too, would not be into that. But, you know, it does sort of fit into that programmer stereotype. Things like Ninja, like, oh, we're looking for a JavaScript Ninja. I don't, I see myself as that. And, you know, that's not how I describe myself. Uh, Rockstar, all of this language is, to me, well, one, it's kind of juvenile. But then, two, it's just not, it's kind of off-putting. And so I think using language like that can also um, keep out who you're bringing in. So those are a few, yeah. couple. <laughs> well, and it kind of reflects also the culture within the company. Yeah. When, when you use language like That's that, true. it gives you a glimpse of like mm-hmm. what, what that looks like. And I think that, like you said, you know, women may not find that as the, the culture that they want to be It's in. very true. Yeah, it's and very so true. I think that job descriptions can definitely, and, and I think that as they should, a job description and an interview is it's two-sided right mm-hmm. like there's a lot of people out there looking for jobs there's a lot of uh, companies out there and so you yeah. have this balance of like the company also needs to sell themselves true in yeah. a certain way and so you as the person that's hiring need to shape the description that really reflects what the company mm-hmm. is and is like it's true yeah it's and one thing that comes to mind is just the challenge of like having been through the job search process search process that's I know you know a lot of um, you know boot camp grads that's one of the first things they'll do is like go through the the, the job search process that uh, 
although it's true, like, you know, you do want to filter, sometimes it can be discouraging when pretty much all the job descriptions are ones where you're like, I don't think I'd fit in there. I don't think I'd fit in there, especially yep. if you're a member of an underrepresented group and you're just like, I'm not going to fit in there. So I think, too, companies should look with a mind, too, to not just represent what's there, but what they what could be there and what, how they sure. could grow sure. and look for people who can do that, too. But definitely represent the company, honestly, because not everybody wants to join a company and try to fix it, you know, as an underrepresented group member uh, like I like I joined that company as the first woman engineer and I knew it was going to be annoying and it was right. uh, I didn't know quite how annoying but uh, but you know a lot of people don't want to do that they want to join a company where they can just do their job yeah. <laughs> and like not not worry about trying to fix a broken culture and so right I, yeah. I feel like that's another job in itself, it is as you know because you created a whole company yeah, 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 yeah. for people um, okay, uh, so going back to like the beginning days of Compassionate Coding, yeah. can you talk a little bit more about the, the mission and what yeah. it looked like in the beginning? Yeah, so at the beginning, it was timed well because I had just gone vegan that year. And so I went to this uh, retreat about compassion. And so I learned all about compassion because the idea with veganism is it's like nonviolence and compassion towards all beings. And so I learned deeply about compassion and it really resonated with me. And I thought, Compassion is what's completely absent from tech. <laughs> like there's just, it's yeah. not a very compassionate place. It's a very cold, rational, logical place. And so I thought this addresses all of these problems that I've seen, whether it's diversity, inclusion, uh, burnout, unethical products, uh, even conflict on teams and like that sort of thing. So I was like the, the core here that what's missing is concern for human beings. And so I thought, well, the way to fix that is to bring in more compassion. And so that's why I started Compassionate Coding to really help humanize uh, the, the, the quote technical side of this industry that I had been working in. Because, you know, of course we had designers, we have product managers, but the coders themselves often had very little interest in the human side of things. And so that's where I saw, given my background, a place where I could bring in emotional intelligence, ethics, uh, compassion, all these things to help uh, create an industry that would be more welcoming to different groups and be more effective and uh, contribute to the world in a better way than it had been. Yeah, can you, Talk a little bit more about the idea of emotional intelligence and developers. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's funny because uh, people who work with developers but aren't developers, when I say I teach emotional intelligence to developers, they're like, thank you. It's <laughs> so <laughs> needed. Uh, and I think it's just, you know, we spend a lot of time on computers, and I can say that as a developer, and not always a lot of time talking with people and caring about how they feel. And so we get used to telling a computer what to do and, like, being able to, you know, yell at it and not care about our tone or anything like that. Um, but with human beings, we're messy and we're fuzzy and complex and we have emotions. And so uh, it's something that's been left out of the curriculum. It's definitely not something that I learned in my computer science curriculum about how to, to deal with people. And I saw it was, you know, definitely missing from most of the teams I was on. People were, you know, there's like uh, the abrasive sort of jerk programmer, like arrogant programmer sort of uh, stereotype. And there's some truth to that stereotype. It's, yeah. uh, you know, so I, I saw a definite need to, 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 to change that because, again, it's not productive when you're when you get into a conflict with somebody and you can't move forward because you're just, you know, it's a shouting match, which happens surprisingly a lot among adults in, in soft, on software teams. Uh, it's not it's not productive. So I was like, there's a real 
business case here for teaching these human skills to sure. be more effective, even as a developer. Yeah, there's much more ego involved in development than I think I realized. Yes, that is a good point. Yeah, definitely. Ego is one of the biggest problems in tech. That's often something that, that I think about because I think, uh, you know, w when we're so concerned about our ego, we're not open to others. We're not mm -hmm. um, trying to put ourselves in their shoes. We're not being empathetic. Yeah, and it's never been, I've never seen it as a like solitary job, mm -mm. right? And so yeah. it, it involves so many other people. And I think that because it it is a craft, it is something that you're creating, there is this like a, a, attachment to mm -hmm. it that I think if you are not aware of that, like you are, you defend that in a way that mm -hmm. is probably not healthy. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, well said. <laughs> because you just, yeah, you just connect with it on a different uh, way. So in the in the beginning of Compassionate Coding, mm -hmm. what kinds of like clients were you bringing on? What were you yeah, diving so into? Yeah, it's, so it's kind of cool how it happened. So I just knew the first, I wanted to start with something very concrete, which was teaching emotional intelligence to developers. So meaning doing trainings on emotional intelligence for developers, using examples from coding, etc. So I started writing about that. I started blogging about that, tweeting about that. And my first client came in over Twitter. And I thought that they just wanted to have an informational kind of chat, kind of like we're having. Like, I thought sure. they just wanted to chat. Um, and they're like, OK, yeah, we want one of those. Like, can you come <laughs> in? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. So I was like, so that was great, because then I got to do that. And then it sort of built from there, like both word of mouth. And Twitter has been really useful for me. Um, you know, a lot of the tech people are on Twitter. Uh, it's like, you know, it's not a very happy place, I know, but uh, a lot of tech happens there. So uh, a lot of my clients have come in through Twitter and it's really built from there. And I, you know, so of like conference speaking opportunities and that sort of stuff as well, uh, which has also helped spread the word. And so then people come up after conferences and they're like, can you do this at my company, et cetera. So that's, it sort of just grew organically, uh, which has been nice because I've never had to sell people on compassionate coding, which is great because um, I don't like to do that. So um, I just sort of put out there what, I, what I'm selling and then if people want it, they come to me, which has been really nice. And I, I'm grateful uh, that people have been receptive to this. Yeah, you do have a great um, voice out there in the community. That well, thank you. I, I have always enjoyed your Twitter conversation. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. Often direct our students to follow what you're doing. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so. Um, so tell me, what what year was that when you first launched? Uh, 2016. So oh yeah, it's like fourth year. That's exciting. Uh, so in the four years, what what have you seen? <laughs> oh, the of, things I've things. seen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, uh, so one thing I've seen, which is very exciting, is that there's a growing awareness of the need for emotional intelligence. So like the the scaling that's happened, like in terms of the first year I was doing it in Lon, it's just like, it's blown me away. And so I think a few key things have happened to um, Linus Torvalds, who created Linux, who was known as this, you know, kind of curmudgeonly, like, like arguably even verbally abusive type person came out saying, I realize I need to learn more about empathy and emotions. And I was like, oh, wow, that's a big deal. Because a lot of developers would point to him and say, well, he's rude to everyone, so I can be rude to everyone, too, mm -hmm. because we're geniuses and we get to be mean, <laughs> which is ridiculous. But, <laughs> but so I was like, you know, that's a sign of hope right there. And so I definitely see uh, progress. And so that's what keeps me going, despite the fact that there's still a lot of brokenness. Sure. <laughs> There's also, I think we're in this healing crisis, so to speak, uh, you know, which um, 
I, I got that term up and it's neatest. We're, we're into this sort of new agey stuff. And um, but <laughs> the healing crisis of we're going through a transition. And so a lot of the, um, the muck is coming to the surface of like problems in tech, lack of diversity, like toxic environments. Yeah. And so a lot of the articles that are really negative about a toxic environment do give me hope because I'm like, we're bringing awareness to this. Yeah. We're, you know, and so that's one thing that I've seen. Um, and as far as like in the actual workshops, I definitely see like minds and hearts opening where people are like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And so that gives me hope too. So yeah. How reward, how, that's gotta be so rewarding to to actually like see that happen. It is, yeah. And you know, it balances out like some of the stuff that happens on Twitter, some of the, sure. <laughs> some of the you know, the trolls and, and all of that, that that comes along with doing this kind of work. It, so that's why I'm like, you know, I can keep doing this because if it's helping like even one person, then I'm happy to do it. But it, when it's helping like this many people, I'm like, you know, I'll, I can keep doing this. Even if, you know, I have to take a lot of self-care breaks, <laughs> I can still keep going. <laughs> I'm glad that you take those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Very important. Yeah. Uh, so you you come into our classroom a lot to talk to our students, um, and I, I think it's so important to have these conversations early on before they're coming into mm-hmm. the industry, um, giving a little glimpse into what you normally talk about with them. What is it for a new developer coming into this industry? What can they do? Um, how can they navigate this kind of the landscape? Yeah, I think one thing is to be really clear on uh, your own values and your own needs in terms of the workplace, but just your life, so that when you go into these environments, you can, like you were talking about, filter the ones that are not going to be a fit for the life you want to lead. And so I think it's really important for developers, even early on, to, to know what that ideal position is so that they have a targeted way of looking at opportunities. And they may decide to compromise on certain things in that first job, but to still keep in mind what they're really looking for and to realize, uh, and I think too, one thing that uh, new developers especially struggle with is imposter syndrome, and I just want to touch on that. I think you're an expert on uh, t- helping dis- you know, um, helping people with this issue, but one thing that um, I'll mention is just that you know, people, you have so much more value to offer, everyone does, than they realize um, coming in as a new developer. And your fresh perspective is so important and so needed and your diverse set of experiences. So regardless of anything you read about, like any if the bias that I mentioned about, um, you know, boot camps or even just new developers, junior developers, I think knowing and just being very confident in the fact that you have, uh, you know, a value and an innate worth that you're bringing to the table and just keep that in mind because that'll that'll translate into confidence when you're in the interviews too. Just like, you know, it's a humble sort of confidence, like knowing that you have value, but, you know, not being arrogant about it, right? There's like a fine line there. And I think that um, developers, new developers in general, especially when they're coming from non-traditional backgrounds or uh, when they're from underrepresented groups, can stand to, to have the reminder that they're bringing a lot of value to the table and to go into interviews knowing that. Right, right, that their their voice means something. I think, you know, we, I think it's a little bit, not just the value of them, but also that their perspective yeah. is, is so important that it's, it's not, it's actually necessary. Yes. And that that's the part that is like, no, 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 you belong there. <laughs> yes. They need you they need there. You. Yes. Because you're going to look at it, even maybe in a big perspective of like the company as a whole or yeah. making sure that, you know, they're t- they're looking at things from all these different perspectives, but also that like just as a new person and a, a new developer looking at the code for the first time, yeah. you're going to see things that the people that have been staring at that code for five <laughs> yeah. years don't see anymore. Very true. And so I think that 
like holding on to that mm -hmm. of like I recognize that I that I'm new and mm -hmm. that I still have a lot to learn, um, but I'm eager and excited to learn those yeah. things. That that's what employers are looking for. Yeah, I, I or the good ones. Yeah, the I good think. ones. Yeah, the good <laughs> ones. Yeah, I was about to say too. The other thing I would mention to that is like, you know, don't let these interviews get you down. Like I went through so many interviews where, no joke, I cried afterwards. Like not in the interview, but when I got home, I just like sat on my couch and cried because so it was so demoralizing cool. and just like they make you feel like an idiot and like you just feel awful. And so you know, learn from my mistakes and but just know that um, the people doing interviews often are not trained in interviewing. Right. And they're just like, a lot of times they'll look up like stuff to, to quiz people on and like they wouldn't even have known it themselves if they hadn't looked it up right before the interview. Right. So try not to be discouraged too by uh, bad interviews and just know that, you know what, like you, if anything, you dodged a bullet, you know, by, by missing that out on that one. <laughs> yep, that's, that's what I tell our students 100% of the time that like y you are interviewing them. And so if, they ask you a question that you don't know, that is an amazing opportunity for you to find out how they're gonna deal with that in the day-to-day -day life. Yes. Because you're coming on as a junior developer, you aren't gonna know everything. Yeah. So you're gonna ask questions. Yeah. So if they ask you a question like, hey, what do you know about X, Y, Z? And your response is, oh, I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. This is how I might go about learning it. And yeah. their response is going to tell you more about what the culture of that company is than mm -hmm. anything else. Very true. And so if you can see those as opportunities and not a like, oh my gosh, I don't know. Of course you don't know. Yeah. There's, there's lots of things you're not going to know. Yeah, that's true. And so looking at, especially when you when it gets to like the technical whiteboarding yeah. and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. that, I, I don't know. I think the whiteboarding is a great opportunity <laughs> to get to know the people that are asking the questions <laughs> more than it is actually for the the candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right? a good point. Like yeah. you learn so much more about like how are you going to support me mm -hmm. in this in this industry or in this company? Yeah. As a junior. Yeah, I think even yeah, even them doing the whiteboarding interviews at all, like you know, <laughs> yeah, sure. it's like I, I definitely appreciate it when the whiteboard is not part of the equation, and it's much more of a conversational thing about past work and the projects you worked For on sure. and the boot camp and stuff like that. Like that's how I like to interview people. Yeah, I like I I have often told this story that we had a student that went into an interview that was had a whiteboarding mm -hmm. component to it, and she got up there and she he asked her a question. And she was like, gosh, I don't know the answer to that. I would probably Google X, Y, Z yeah. or whatever. And the, this is the best response I have ever heard. He said, okay, pretend I'm Google. And so they just had this like oh, collaborative yeah. thing that I was like, that's the best whiteboarding <laughs> experience that I've ever heard of. <laughs> and so it was such a good like, let's see how we work together yeah, kind of thing. More collaborative. Yeah. And, yeah. And so I like those kind of interviews that are like, let's sit down and pair program together. I do like those. I like pair programming ones, yeah. Yeah, that like, see how we work together mm -hmm. instead of testing how you memorize things. Yeah. Because yeah. that's not helpful when you're on the job. No. <laughs> you would look something up. Yeah. So I want to know your thought process of going through that and yeah. not what you can just remember in this yeah. thing. So that's great. Um, so with... The new new folks coming into the industry, mm -hmm. do you see, um, especially with a lot of the different types of learners and different coming from different things, do you see the like wave of change with with them coming into? Yeah, it's 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 like um, I do. It's just it's slower than than we sure. would like um, because you know 
one like sort of bar that I look at is just the diversity inclusion stats for some of the big companies that release them, and they're actually not changing very much. And sure. I think a big part of that is they're not addressing the underlying culture issues. They're not re, uh, they're not like adjusting the workplace to be more welcoming. Um, and so they're just like, well, if you can if you can come from an underrepresented group and come in and act exactly like us, then you're welcome. But you know, we're not gonna change anything substantial to, to, to make you feel welcome. And I think that is a problem. Uh, I do think that it's great that people are coming in. I think we need a lot more diversity in leadership and I think that will have bigger changes. So that's why I think it's happening slowly because people are still you know, coming in yep. and, and there's attrition because they're not feeling welcome and so we're losing a lot of them. And yep. so, but it's still, I think that having these conversations, I mean, the fact that we're even talking about this, um, you know, these conversations that there were two women talking about like tech issues right here, you know, and just like your whole team really. Um, and it's that is progress compared to we talk about decades ago in tech, you know, so right. this is progress. And so that, um, yeah, but it's just it's slower than I would like, which is why I keep like, you know, getting out there and talking about it because I would like it to happen more quickly, you know, before I die. Right. So <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I do think I think you're right. I think that seeing the leadership change mm -hmm. and I think that there are small changes there, but um, because there is a lot of new developers coming into the scene that the more we can support them into yes. getting into those roles, the the more successful we're going to be in, in making any kind of big change. Yeah, absolutely. We things. need more of them in there. We need more of the, you know, compassionate coders coming in from all angles. <laughs> for sure. So what, so today, what's, what are the big things on your to-do list for 2020? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, a good question. Um, I just took like a two-month sabbatical, so I'm still, I'm still like, <laughs> <You're so jealous. laughs> yeah, no, I'm still, amazing. yeah, it was really, it was really nice, but so I'm still adjusting from that, but yeah, I've had a lot of good clients come in, so there should be a lot of like, a lot of private speaking stuff coming up, which will be um, cool, a lot of travel, but hopefully less travel this year than last. I'm trying to scale it back a bit. Um, I did like a European tour last year, and it was great, but also exhausting. And so I'm, I'm trying to practice what I preach as far as self-care. Uh, but so yeah, there's a lot of uh, client opportunities. And I'm also working on an online course so that people who can't come to a workshop can still benefit from a lot of the compassionate coding material. So that's one of my big pushes for 2020 is to uh, get that out. Um, and in parallel, I'm working on a book about compassionate coding also to help scale it out. But yeah, talk about like doing too much. Yeah. <laughs> but but, um, but that's okay. Um, you know how it is. Like I still, like I said, I still take some days when I just like sit at the beach for like a week. So uh, I, I'm not like in balance. danger of burning out right now. So I'm okay. But we all have to strike our own balance. I guess that's part of it. So yeah. everyone's is, everyone's balance is different. Yeah. Right. Like and and that's okay. That's totally okay. Yeah. Uh, having however many productive hours in a day you have <laughs> will shift and change and change throughout your life. That's true too. Right. Like it kind of goes up and down. I've noticed a lot that you know, what I'm doing today versus mm -hmm. five, 10 years ago, like it's all different. Yep. And so recognizing that, but that's exciting. It is. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm happy about it. And then again, like I try to still make time to do like mentoring and things like that too, just because that's important to me. So. Awesome. That takes me right back to my next question about mentoring, because mm -hmm. I think that I want to hear a little bit of your opinions about the both the mentor and the mentee side of it, mm -hmm. because I think that there are things we need to pay attention to. Like as a mentee, what are my, what would you want to see from me? Mm -hmm. You know, what makes a good mentee? Mm -hmm. And then also what makes a good mentor? Like what yeah. are those things? You know, it's interesting. Uh, every time I hear those terms, I think about this book I read called The Heart of Mentoring. And they talked about 
um, instead of using those terms, just talking about a mentoring relationship to like emphasize that it's sort of two way, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of neat. But um, but anyway, but I think like the person who is looking for mentorship, I think on both sides, one thing to keep in mind is that it doesn't necessarily have to be a formal um, long term engagement at all. Sure. Uh, sometimes I'll have one conversation with somebody um, and they'll tell me later, like, thank you for that mentorship. And like, it's made such a big difference in my life. And we've only ever had one, you know, serious conversation, but it was enough. It's what they needed at that moment. Yeah. And so I think knowing what you're looking for and being open to a range of uh, different uh, relationships and different um, setups between arrangements between two people, I think is useful because then you know, one thing that, that can be awkward is if somebody's just like, I want to be mentored and they have in mind that they want this like long-term coaching, which is really more coaching and not mentorship. Sure. And I think knowing that, you know, that's not always going to work out the way you want it to, uh, because not everybody has the bandwidth to, you know, for free be somebody's like professional coach, right? And so uh, I think knowing that and also knowing that, um, just knowing that you're when you're asking someone to mentor you, you are reaching out and asking for, uh, you know, a contribution of sorts, like a favor of sorts, you know, and to remember that, you know, especially women and people from underrepresented groups in tech are already overtaxed in a lot of ways. And just keep that in mind, too, when you go to them that uh, they may already be under a lot of demands. Um, and then I think for people who could potentially mentor people, I think one, no matter where you are in your career, you can be a mentor. Mm -hmm. And so, I, and it's definitely a rewarding thing as you were talking about, um, any sort of mentorship I think is very rewarding. Uh, so, you know, I think, uh, clear, like in, like in any relationship, I think clear communication about expectations on both sides is really what matters most. And that kind of applies no matter whether it's a formal career mentorship, whether it's kind of a mix of both. Sometimes you encounter people that you all are comfortable talking about personal stuff with too. And so it's this like, you know, life is messy. People, humans are messy. And so <laughs> I, I, that's why I like mentorship. I'm like, uh, I also see myself as a self mentor. Like I mentor myself a lot too. I read books. They're my mentors. Uh, so I think being open to a wide range of the definition of mentorship is one of the best ways to benefit from it. I don't think I've ever heard that before, self-mentoring. I really, I mean, I it makes sense to me in that idea of like working on yourself and yeah. working through stuff, <clears throat> which I, a lot of people do, but I've never actually really thought of it as this like <laughs> yeah. relationship with yourself and working through, you know, the different things. Yeah, I like it because too, um, I think ultimately we have our own filter of what's important to us. And sometimes we'll get advice uh, from people, you'll hear advice from people and they're well-meaning and they really want to help you, but it may not apply to your life. Right. And so I think being able to mentor yourself, you know when to filter out stuff that doesn't apply to you. Yeah, I think that that's really important because you're you're never going to find someone that is like exactly in line <laughs> yeah. with everything that you believe. And so being true to yourself and understanding what that is so that you can, like you said, yeah. filter it as you need to. I also love the idea, you know, we we talk to our students a lot that like, even once they, right after they graduate, there are people that need their help. Yes. Right. And so we try really hard on the first day of school or first day of a new cohort. We break bread with like everyone in the building. So there's people that, students that are, you know, 10, 12 weeks into the mm. program and then people on their first day. Yeah. Um, and then we bring Notch 8 down and developers from there and like have yeah. this big, like, okay, we're all going <laughs> to be in this room together. I like that. And, uh, so that they can talk to each other because they may just be 12 weeks ahead of them, but that's a, that's a lot of progress. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and so I love the idea of just 
you can be a mentor at every stage. Yeah, I love how, that, how you said that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know a lot of the learn students too sometimes volunteer with the League of Amazing Programmers, uh-huh. right? And so they help out kids learning to code, which is great too. Right. right. Yeah. So there, it, it does. It goes. Um, and the other thing I think that's important is recognizing the idea of peer to peer mentorship. Oh yeah, is so that's a good important one. That I feel like. I mean, I even think about that when you and I meet. Yeah. That, like, it's something that I can, I learn so much from you and Likewise, what you're doing. Yeah. And so y- those kinds of relationships, and I think especially for the students, that using each other as, as a resource mm-hmm. and as a way to, like, work through all these things that you're going through is really important. Mm-hmm. And that you don't necessarily always need somebody that's five years ahead of you. Yeah, that's a good point. So I think that that, like, peer-to-peer is really valuable yeah so agreed cool well is there anything else in the pipeline that you want to talk about um no not right now no i think we covered it yeah we got through a lot didn't we (laughs) we did i think we did um well tell people where they can find you and yeah about you yeah so the best place is compassionatecoding.com and i have a mailing list there which is where i'll announce when the course is launched so that would be a good place to stay in touch and i'm on twitter too of course as i mentioned april wins on twitter (laughs) if you want to see sometimes feisty a little feisty compassion some fierce compassion as i call it (laughs) um and then sometimes just regular compassion but yeah. yeah i i as i said i point people towards your Twitter feed off. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, well, great. Well, thank you so much for hanging out. Thank and, you for having me. Sharing your story. I, I love hearing more about it. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me. And thank you for having learned. I mean, honestly, I think we need, we definitely need these students in the industry. So thank you for doing that. Right. Well, I'm happy for them. And <laughs> they're, uh, the students are amazing. They, they, they really are. <laughs> yeah, I always love speaking with them. They're truly amazing. They always have the best questions, the best feedback. Like I love speaking and learn. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Uh, like I said, you can uh, hang out with us. You can uh, find us at learnacademy.org or any of the social channels, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of all of those places. Um, but you can get all that info at learnacademy.org. Thank you so much. Have a great day.